Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to Building a Black Educator Pipeline podcast. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educator activist dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Major shout out to all my co-conspirators out here listening today. You've come to the right place where we talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. Today, we'll be connecting with Kurt Russell, the 2022 National Teacher of the Year, and we will be talking all things education. Kurt, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with you this morning. And we are excited to have you here. Definitely excited. So, brother, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Can you just share with us who you are and what should we know about Kurt? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, I teach in a small town, a town that is called Oberlin. That's in Ohio. It's located um, in the same town as Oberlin College. I think many of your audience probably heard of Oberlin College, um, the first college um, that was co-ed, um, first African-American woman to graduate from a college was from Oberlin. And so I come from a very historical town and both my parents were migrants from Alabama. And so um, looking for better job opportunities, they came to Ohio, you know, the Rust Belt area um, and raised three boys. I wanted to become a teacher at a very early age. I had a fabulous um, kindergarten teacher by the name of Miss Francine Toss. And she introduced just some readings that were so diverse, I just fell in love. And then my eighth grade math teacher, Mr. Larry Thomas, was the first black male teacher I ever had in the classroom. And from there, many people say that they were born to be a teacher. I think I was shaped and molded to be a teacher because of Mr. Thomas, because of Ms. Toss. And I just fell in love with education been teaching for 25 years. I teach history. Um, I'm also the varsity boys basketball coach as well. So dual hats. Um, I'm the advisor of several organizations from student council to junior class and also the newly formed Black Student Union that was organized probably two years ago. So in a nutshell, that's who I am. I love teaching. I love the um, the relationship that I have with students. And hopefully I love to empower students um, through discourse and through tough conversations. I love it. I love it. I love it. Super excited and dope, inspiring. So what we, what I would love to hear more about, uh, we always talk to the, talk to our guests about this on the show is what actually inspired you to become an educator? Cause I know you had a great relationship with your kindergarten teacher and then um, with your first black male teacher and I always tell people, people underestimate the role um, relationships um, that teachers built with their with their students. I love school because of the first orientation I had with my pre-K teachers and my kindergarten teacher. Like they made me love school because they made me feel like school was a place that was that they laid the foundation, like for safety, for learning, for love, like loving me, pouring into me. So they gave me the orientation that like, oh my God, school is always going to be exciting <laughs> and I'm always going to be like met with love and warmth. But I would love to hear about how those two teachers really inspired your journey to be an educator. And you know what? What you just said was absolutely my story, where my kindergarten teacher, as I mentioned, her name was Miss Francine Toss, and she was a white woman. And she introduced um, 
you know, books, as I said earlier, but there was one book specially. She opened up the book and she said, I'm going to read a story about a young boy. And when she opened up the book, it was a story about Martin Luther King Jr. Now, this was in like 1978, right? So this was before Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, before he was this iconic figure. And when she opened up the pages and I noticed this black boy throughout these pages, it just resonated with me. Like, wow, this is a story about me. Um, no, my family from Alabama. She's reading a book about a young boy from Alabama. And from there, it was just this connection that I had with just learning. And I just love stories because of Miss Toss. And history is nothing but stories, right? And so I gravitated towards history because I love telling stories, especially stories about like unknown heroes and sheroes. Um, stories that you might not have heard of before. And from there, as I mentioned, Mr. Thomas, a person who I saw that I could model myself after. Uh, at the time, he had an Afro, uh, impeccable dresser, and just really, really down to earth. And he made everyone feel so comfortable um, as they walked into his classroom. And Mr. Thomas also, even though he taught math, really taught about diversity because he brought in women mathematicians, black mathematicians at a very early age. And this was before it was popular to really have this diverse curriculum. And Mr. Thomas was the one that I modeled myself after and I just fell in love with just teaching. Yeah. So what I'm seeing in both of those experiences is that you actually got to see what you wanted to be. Um, yes. And like you knew it was possible. Shout out to your kindergarten teacher for in the 70s being what we would consider to be super progressive uh, right now for bringing in a book about Martin Luther King when it wasn't even, you know, popular and the nation brought on to this idea of who we have said Martin Luther King is, which is a whole nother story. But and, and she didn't have to, right? She did not have she to did. introduce that. And she was intentional. And I learned about being intentional because of her and because of the other great teachers I have, that in order for me to reach my students, even today, I have to be intentional. I have to make sure that my students see themselves in the curriculum. So every lesson that I teach, I try to incorporate stories that my students could reflect upon. I love, I really do love that she did that. Um, and somebody might see that as something so minute, like, oh, they just read a, a book about Martin Luther King. But to have a young black boy in her class who then you open up the pages and it's like, hey, wait a minute, that, that kid looks like me. And he did these great things. Um, and, and the power of like representation, right? The yes. power of image yes. that if you could see it, you could be it. And it was just so impactful for me. Yes. And your, your male teacher, he was that in the flesh. Like, look at this dude yes. with his afro. <laughs> So cool, right? Like, <laughs> and he listened to the same type of music we listened to. Um, he played basketball, so we used to see him at the park. So it was just one of those connections Love that it. we had, and I think that's what made him a great teacher. And I think that what makes people great teachers, as long as they could relate to, to the students. Yes, that so they could connect with their students. Number one, students seeing them as real people, as human people. Um, 
but finding the common connections. Whereas naturally your black male teacher, he just might have been into some of the things you guys were into because culturally, like that's might have been how he grew up, the neighborhood we was from. You know, he he's down with you guys. Probably again, like you said, the music, um, the sports aspect of thing. Culturally, he was more connected. But again, shout out to your kindergarten teacher, and the reason why I'm saying shout out to her, and I want people to realize people are listening to this podcast who may not have the same cultural background as folks. You already said the word. Be very intentional about what you do to make sure that all of the students in your classrooms feel comfortable, feel connected, feel loved, and can see themselves in the things that they're learning. That's super important. I love that you had that experience. All credit to, as I said, Miss Toss for just being loving, right, and understanding what her students need. And I try to emulate that even today. What do my students need from me in order for them to grow? And from Ms. Toss to Mr. Thomas, I think what they really, really need is to feel respected, to feel loved, to feel valued. And we could do that through making sure they see themselves in the class. But what, you, what you're hinting on, right? Like we're like tipping on this point of like people are like, okay, I love my students. I respect my students. But Ms. Tulsa, Mr. Thomas, they showed that through action and not just action of saying, hey, I love you. Let me pat you on the back and give you a hug. Ms. Tulsa showed y'all because she said, I love and care for these children so much and that the things that are need, need to be connected to their growth. So we're going to read a story that I know that my black students are going to be engaged with. Right. That's an act of love. Hey, I'm going to make sure that my students feel connected to this curriculum and this work. So as a teacher, I care about what they're learning. I care about how they're engaging, engaging with my work. So through that is is another way that she showed, like, I do love these kids. I do care about these kids. And I think it's important for people to see that there's action and intentional action and love when we're dealing with students. And, and you know what? And it wasn't I never felt as though it was a chore for her to do. Right. You know, sometimes some teacher might do things because it's a chore, right? You have, have to, to do, do it, it because you were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she didn't. I didn't notice that from her. I didn't feel that from her. She did it because she loved us and she valued us. And she wanted to make sure that the same education that her white students received was the same education that her black students are going to receive. Yes. Love it. Love it. Shout out to Miss Tolson. Now, I don't want to graze over this, but you've been a teacher for how long? 25 years. 25 years. And you are currently still in the classroom, right? Yes, I am. And 25 years in the same school. So the school I graduated from is the school now where I teach. That's insane. And yes. And it's so, I always wanted to come back to Oberlin. Um, because what Oblin poured into me is what I want to give to this next generation. And I never thought about wavering from that. I always wanted to go back to this small little town and just try to provide some type of hope, some type of inspiration um, to all kids and to make sure that all kids have the best educational opportunities possible. I love that. And that's super inspiring. It's very rare that you have people who come back and actually teach in the school that they graduated from and then stay there um, for this amount of time. We know right now with teacher shortage and the revolving door of teachers, 
what has made you stay in the classroom for so long? Like what keeps you anchored there? You haven't moved up into administration. You haven't tried to like be a principal. Like, and then you're like, I am going to stay in the classroom and we need more of you. We need more teachers like you who are like experts, professionals, veterans in front of our children. But what has kept you in the classroom? The simplest answer, the kids. Absolutely has been the students. Um, they give me so much energy. It's it's nothing like being in front of young people where we are having in-depth conversation about world issues. And it really saddens me when adults feel as though young people cannot have intelligent conversation that is worthwhile, right? We always think that kids can't handle this or that we need to shelter our children um, because the conversation might be a little bit too much for them. And that's further from the truth. And what keeps me going is the energy that the kids provide me every single day. I have much respect and love for administrators because they are doing the hard work as well. But I need to be on the ground, right? I need to be in the midst of the kids. And I feel that in the classroom. I love it. Again, some of us are like born and built for this work, uh, especially dealing with young people. And what grade level do you teach? Ninth through 12th. Ah, high school. Yeah, and I love it. <laughs> love it. And, you know, and what I love about high school kids, I love their attitudes, right? Yes. I, I love their attitude. <laughs> I love the challenge that sometimes they present. It's nothing like it. It, it really is. And when I tell people that I love their attitudes, they look at me strange. They're going to. Really yeah. <laughs> They're going I to. Love- I'm a middle school person. And when I say that, people are like, ah, but I, I love middle school. They're like, it takes a special kind of unicorn to love those babies. But I do. I still feel like they're in between that pleasing stage. And then they're also in the stages where you can shape and mold and lay the foundation for them to be good people and to be good citizens and have those good attitudes when they go to high school. And I love high school too. High school is my second love. My last would probably be the babies, honey, wiping oh. the boogers and touching me. I can't do it. And again, that takes a special heart work too to be <laughs> kindergarten, first grade, second grade teachers. I, I get it. <laughs> and I always mention that uh, every national teacher of the year should probably be a primary school teacher. Uh, <laughs> what they do. It's amazing the work that they do on a daily basis. Agree. That is fact. But then some people will look at your work in high school and say, like, I could never. For the reason you love them, people struggle. Their attitudes. Because at that age, they're forming, you know, who they are. You get the whole, like, I got a little bit of knowledge, so I actually know everything. I know better than you. You as an adult, you don't know. Um, I kind of have, like, found my sense of a friend group and what I want to be or trying to fit in type stuff. So, showing off the peers are more important than than the adult right the risk is greater than the reward all of that stuff is happening um in that high school realm so i could understand why folks would be like uh brother you can have that you can have that i take it all day well you you hit on a really good point and that is they are at the level and the age where you can have extremely mature conversations with young people um and their brains are thinking and the thing about young people is that altogether, they're not afraid to take risk. So imagine what that looks like in the conversation in the classroom and its authenticity when the kids are like really speaking truth to power and saying what's really on their mind, how they feel, even being inquisitive with the kind of questions um, that they're asking. Um, 
But do you mind if I share a story with that? Please. Because, um, I teach a course that's called Race, Gender, and Oppression. Mm. And within this class, there's different types of units. So we study um, you know, Black Lives Matter, women's studies, LGBTQ+. But there was a lesson that I provided, that I gave, that dealt with um, cynical falls in the women's rights movement. And so we were discussing how sexism has caused women to be oppressed. And so a student raised her hand and said, Mr. Russell, and she challenged me on this. Um, you know, you are speaking of the 1800s, how women were oppressed. And we just came up with this new dress code at our schools where young girls cannot wear straps. They have to be like three fingers. Anything less than that was against our policy. And so the student said, Mr. Russell, you you talking about injustice that happened in the 1800s. Do you feel as though the dress code is sexist? Yeah, call me out. And I said, you know what? Because the young guys in our school did not have a dress code, so they could wear tank tops. Uh, and I said, you know what? I believe so. And then the student said this. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Caught you to the carpet. Yes. Called you yes. to the carpet on it. So what are you going to do about it? So you keep teaching about injustice. You keep talking about it, things that happened in the past, and you keep making it relevant to the future or the present time. But what are you going to do about it? And so that's what I'm saying in terms of young people in the conversation that we are having in the classroom, because they are well aware of what is happening. Very aware. And it's okay. It's okay to, for that student to challenge me to say, what are you going to do about it then? As a teacher, as someone that has some type of authority in the school, what are you going to do about it? Shout out to that young lady, okay? <laughs> I love that. And I love that she did that. But the foundation yeah. of that is the information and the curriculum and the courses that you're choosing to have them be equipped with this knowledge to say like, hmm, this sounds uh -huh. eerily similar <laughs> to the oppression <laughs> that was happening then to now. How is this different? And I love and, that she found that. Why should I get upset with that student or get offended when that student is really raising very a good question. Point. Very critical yeah. point she had. Very. I love it. And I think as a teacher, we need to be vulnerable in our classroom. And she raised that with respect. So she wasn't rude or nasty. It was a respectful response that she had. And I think as educators, we need to be more willing to accept those tough questions as well. Oh, I agree. I think there is space um, to allow young people to challenge us and to question us. And I think sometimes we get frustrated, like, well, they, they're rude or they didn't talk to me appropriately, but I'm pretty sure that you definitely have some strategies on how you set the stage in your classroom for children to engage um, in dialogue. Um, do you have, you have any have like, ground rules? Yes, you, you gotta have norms in your classroom. And um, first day of class, you know, we create our norms and we make sure that all of us agree to them that all of us could respect them, and then we move forward. And so it's a space that is safe for all kids to share and to respond and to be heard. What are some of the other courses that you teach? Yeah, so I teach um, race, gender, and oppression. I teach another course that's called African-American History. 
And I teach a class also that's called Black Music in the African Diaspora. You know what's exciting about these titles as you're naming them? You wouldn't think of those being selections that kids take in high school, right? Yeah. Like, especially race, gender, like, that's like, hey, that's the actual college course, right? Like, that's like a freshman year of elective in a college setting. So the fact that your students are getting the opportunity to have these courses in high school, that's that's dope. You know what? It was so unique about it. First of all, it's probably the most popular courses at our high school. It's not because of me. It's because of the engagement that the courses offer. The content, yes. Right? Yeah. So tell me a student that does not like music, right? So students love culture. They love music. Um, students love to talk about rights. And students love to talk about different marginalized groups. And so when I started teaching at Oberlin, I said that I wanted to bring courses that reflect our student demographics. And those courses have been such a inspiration, not only to the students, but for me as well, because I'm learning so much from my kids. Love that. And what's also right, people are probably listening to this podcast right now. It's like, <laughs> how's these, how does brother get these courses uh, approved? Okay, what what is happening? So what ways have your, has your district been supportive of the curriculum choices? I am so blessed to work for a district that understands the need um, includes, uh, to make sure that all students are inclusive in the curriculum. And so a very progressive school district I offered it. They said, Kurt, great. We like it. Let's move forward. And from there, it was that easy. But I would tell other teachers who might not be as fortunate in working in a district that might find these courses to be rather not necessary, Mm -hmm. keep pushing, keep asking, and keep putting students at the center of that discussion, saying that our kids need this. And it doesn't matter. You could be from a rural area with all white students, but our white students need to have a course that deals with different groups. You know, we are a global society. And so if we are a global society, then we need to learn about different people. So it's so necessary. Keep pushing, keep asking. Um, for those courses. Yeah, and I think that the at the heart of what you're saying is our kids need windows and they need mirrors. I think the problem becomes when one culture is getting a whole bunch of, uh, <laughs> of mirrors um, and not a lot of windows out into the world. So a lot of times our Black students are met with tons of windows and not a lot of mirrors, not a lot of things that are reflective of them. So even as you make the point about rural culture, they need some they need some windows out into the world as well. They need to see other cultures reflected in the curriculum that they're, that they're engaging in. You know, I used to be so bored in classes where I did not see myself. You know, it's like a two month. Of course I love history, but if every lesson deals with a white man, then I'm just turned off by that. Right? There's spaces for all groups to be seen and heard. There's spaces for white males to have a discussion, white women, but also there's spaces for people of color, black people to have discussion. 
And we need to make sure that we offer that to all of our students. Agree. And it's just natural human nature to be connected to the things that are relational to you. Just like you, I remember sitting in, in class and being bored, continuing to hear the same type of story where the white male is the protagonist. And then in, 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 histor- in history, when we get to the parts that actually involve Black people in America specifically, right? Because they're only going to teach from the American perspective, right? So we're going to learn about ourselves as slaves or learn about ourselves being oppressed. But even yes. there were teachers that even at times that we got to those part of the stories where I still got to learn about like me, like what happened to me in America? Oh no, we're going to graze over that. You don't need to know how you was beaten, bruised, and oppressed. We don't want to talk about that. It was an ugly time in American history. Okay, well, let's hear about what they did. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to graze on over that. We're not going to speak, you know, about, we're going to fast forward. Um, to the good times. So I've I've had to experience a lot of that. So the fact that you have an open classroom where you guys are again discussing these historical purposes and like allowing students to like fight through it, grapple with tests, talk about it, and again have these various windows and mirrors that they're engaging with, I think is phenomenal. But you're doing it at a high school level. They don't have to wait to college to get that kind of engagement, which is going to have them already like even more prepared. I love it. Love it. And, and what love I love it. about it as well, in order for us as a society to grow, that we have to start with our young people and we have to tell the truth mm-hmm. to our young people. You know, we have to be truth tellers. And as you mentioned, we can't skim over difficult topics in history. We have to dive into it. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, it seems as though that's a taboo that. No, we don't want our kids to feel uncomfortable. What's wrong with being uncomfortable? That's how you grow. If you stay in the same space because you are comfortable, there's no growth there. Mm-hmm. So talk about get it. into that space of being uncomfortable and let's learn from it together in a safe environment like school. There are a group of lawmakers on Capitol Hill um, that may need to hear that message <laughs> about being uncomfortable. Uh, there's a group of parents somewhere, um, plenty of groups of parents um, in places that are protesting the idea and the notion of their children feeling uncomfortable, for sure. And I'm looking at your work, and I thought about it like, hmm, do you look at your work or would you consider your work and the things that you do in class to classify under one of the CRTs, right? Because there's two. You have culturally relevant teaching <laughs> and then you have what the big blowout of critical race theory. Um, and I'm pretty sure in some instances people would classify your work as, of course, you are doing culturally relevant teaching. That is something that you are doing. Um, but people would now in today's political climate attempt to classify your work as critical race theory. What would be your thoughts on that? Um, It's quite simple. I teach history, right? I teach history. I teach facts. Um, That's what I teach. There's nothing about what is so abnormal discussing reconstruction and how it's relevant to today's society. What's abnormal about that? No, what's abnormal about discussing, um, no, the plight of African-Americans in our country. It's nothing abnormal about that. It's nothing divisive about that. I do not stand in front of my classroom and point fingers at my white students and say, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's you, you. No, it's, that does not happen in any classroom. And if it does happen in the classroom, that teacher should be fired on the spot, right? So what happens in a progressive classroom, I shouldn't say progressive, in a 
classroom that is teaching the truth is students are learning about not only society, but about themselves and how they are interconnected in this global society. And that's what I teach. We teach fact and we teach truth. And then we have to go further and, and ask folks like, why are you uncomfortable with the truth? Um, yes. And then you get into a whole nother realm of, right, because you would like to preserve white dominance and white supremacy, which is which leads to your uncomfortableness with the truth. But why are you uncomfortable with the truth? But I love how you layered it just in that. Like, no, not, I'm just, it's history. It's actually what happened. Yeah. And it's similar for, you know, me being a cisgender male. It's the same as I'm learning about the oppression of women in this country. Why should I feel attacked when we mentioning women being oppressed in our country? Those are facts. Those is it's nothing about what I'm saying that is not accurate. It's facts. And we could learn from that. And that's the only thing I'm trying to help my kids is to grow and to learn. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Now, with all this happening in terms of how you're teaching, to put in perspective, do you feel like there is an attack right now on African-American history and culture? Do you feel like society right now um, with... Because the reason why I bring up African-American history specifically because... When you look at the books that are being banned or the things that are being talked about in school, this is really specific to a strand of, of race. Um, and when it's race, it really is. We're not talking about anything that ain't white um, it, it is what it looks like. So I would love to hear from you and teaching these kinds of courses. Um, do you feel pressure? Do you feel like there's an attack right now on African-American history and culture? Um, I do believe there is an attack on African-American culture just by the erasing of our culture and mainstream society, right? Um, by, as you mentioned, taking away, you know, books that deals with slavery and deals with reconstruction and trying to remove that from our curriculum. So from that avenue, yes, there is an attack. In regards to me having pressure, I don't see it that way. I see it as though I have an obligation, I have an obligation to tell the truth and to provide the best possible educational experience for all of my children. Um, and so I, I need to continue um, what I'm doing because the kids need it and the kids are growing, the kids are learning. And uh, it's so special for me to be a part of a classroom where students are like I said earlier, asking these questions and wanting to learn. And that's what gets me excited because they want to learn. Um, it's not boredom. It's not, oh, I'm in this class because I have to be. You know, these are electives that I teach. You know, African American history is an elective. Race, gender, and oppression. Black music in the African diaspora. Those are electives. So students are signing up for these courses. And that tells me that they want to be a part of this learning environment. The courses that you're naming, I mean, when I tell you like I'm in love, like I need to come and <laughs> sit in one of these courses and I'm just excited about the beauty of the lesson that these students are getting, this rich history and this rich knowledge that they're getting. But I love how you, it's very simple. All you're doing is telling the truth. 
um, and why we run and why we hide from the truth um, and why would we not be transparent and tell our children what the truth is and why are people afraid of that? I think making that point and driving that home kind of gets out of the weed of the language of, of the CRTs, right? Yeah. And, and we learning in a safe environment. And that's what is so important about this work is that kids are not learning necessarily through false media or movies or TikTok. No, they are learning in a classroom that is structured enough where they feel safe and they feel as though they could ask questions and learning together. And what more can we want from our young people is to learn in a safe environment where there's no attacks. I'm speaking from my own experience. In my classrooms, we get heated. Um, there's some yelling that takes place yeah, because it's real. The emotion is raw. The emotions are real. And that's okay because as adults, we yell at one another, right? We, we are intense, I should say, in my classroom. But we are intent in a safe place where it's not pointing fingers at one another. I love it. It's the passion. It's the passion. You're talking about the passion. And thank you for drawing the comparison and parallel to as adults, we yell at each other. Because there are times that you see young people, especially teenagers, displaying what I would consider basic human emotion. Um, and adults are like, how dare they? You act the same way <laughs> as a grown person. Yes, I'm so confused by that. It's the, um, you, know, you are yelling at someone, so the kids are modeling your, your behavior. behavior. Where, yeah. where did they learn it? So adults need to, you know, we need to check ourselves and how we model some behaviors that we are doing. Again, the best teachers um, that I've encountered on one of their practices, um, and you've said it, like, we need to check ourselves. So that very much reflective practice of reflecting on yourself, your behavior, your craft, the things that you're doing as adults to get better every day for the children. So keeping the children at the center of it. And again, your heart's work and you inspiring that passion in your room with those courses and that history to tell the truth is at the center of the children deserve the truth. They deserve to know. Um, and I love that that's what keeps you anchored in that classroom. It is. It keeps me anchored and it's the center of everything that I do. Um, it's the kids and making sure that the voices of my students you know, are that they feel confident enough to express themselves and to be heard um, and to learn together. Love that. Now, brother, you are a black male educator, right? Some would consider you a unicorn. So <laughs> with nationally, the numbers still being um, at about 2% um, in the nation of, of black male teachers and you being in the classroom for as many years as, as you have, one would ask, right? Because a lot of times we talk to brothers um, and brothers will say they left the profession because they don't feel supported. Um, they don't feel developed and they don't feel mentored. Um, how has your district supported you as a black male educator? Thank you so much for that question, because what you just mentioned, why black male teachers are leaving is what my school district saw the need of. So when I first started in the late 1990s, I had a black male mentor that mentored me into the profession. Um, and that was so key and was so important. It's, 
what I learned was not necessarily pedagogy, right? You know, you learned that in school, but I learned how to navigate the education system, right? How to work it, um, what should be my anchor. And I never forget the wisdom that this person instilled within me. And the person said the following, your purpose in teaching should be the purpose of kids, that the kids need to see you in the classroom. And I, I thought to myself, why do they need to see me? I'm, I'm young. Um, you know, I never thought about the power of representation. But then I reflected, yes, students need to see me in the classroom. Um, not only black students, but white students, all students. And that's what has kept me anchored and kept me within um, the classroom for all these years. Um, is that what's my purpose? What's my why? And my why is to try to give a positive reflection within my kids. Love it. And again, because that grounded you, right? So we've talked about this on, on other podcasts that I've had the importance of, of mentors. And I love that you said, like, it wasn't somebody that was coaching you on pedagogy because there are times and spaces and circles that I have this conversation about mentorship. Sometimes people see mentorship and they wrap in the word coaching and they wrap in the word coaching because then they wrap in coaching on like instructional practices, which I'm not saying that that isn't important. We don't just want any black man in front of kids. We do want qualified and we do want skillful black men. And we cannot negate the importance of just mental support and stability and connection and networking that our black men need when they come into these spaces. And a lot of times that's absent. So again, I mean, Oberlin been ahead of the times, honey, because you're talking about this was in 1990 <laughs> that when you when you came in, they made sure that you had somebody that you were connected to. Yes. Which again set the foundation for a long career for you um, within and, this district. And just the, like I said earlier, with the mentor telling me my purpose, but also to, you know, handle microaggression, right, from other colleagues. You know, how do you handle that? And I was coached on that. You know, I was the, the person me on how do I handle um, microaggression that happens in schools. And um, you know, how to carry yourself. It was so, so important for me um, as a young aspiring teacher to have that type of knowledge poured into me. Um, and I've been taking that knowledge, reflecting upon that knowledge for the past 25 years. Again, but under people will underestimate that, right? But that is something that naturally as a limited kind of person or species as you will in this in this profession right it's not a lot of you so you're not going to run into a lot of black men that you're connected with you're going to run into a bunch of people who may not be able to connect with you culturally have preconceived notions of who you are so you're going to encounter microaggressions that's just something that's going to happen and that's not something that you're going to learn how to deal with um in the school of education you're not going to get yeah. that kind of training on that. <laughs> and then the other uh, problem is if this isn't a dis uh, a problem that the district would see as persistent or or uh, profession wide, they're not going to provide training on it, right? So the best way to do that is to connect you um, to someone who's been through it and is skillful and able to help you kind of 
you know, get through it and practice and coach you through those those things that are gonna, that are going to be inevitable as a black male in education. You know, it's it's small little things, right? When you walk into the office and you say good morning, everyone, and no one say anything, mm. right? <laughs> How do you handle that? As a that happened to me many of times in my early days. I was the only black male teacher in my whole entire district for probably ten years. Right. So the only black male teacher in the entire district, K through 12. It's yes. a lot. It's a lot of weight. It's, it's, it's heavy. It's heavy when you walk into PDs and you walk into um, you know, all faculty meetings and you look around and you are the only one. Yes. So how do you handle that? The black man tax. That's, that's you, a tax on your spirit, brother. Yes. And that's why you need strong mentorship to get you through those times. And uh, like I said, I was so blessed to have one. And you draw, like I said, for me, I, I appreciate you sharing that story because you draw the point out for me, for people to hear the difference between mentorship and coaching. Yes. And there has to be a separation and it has to be a difference, right? Because I've heard people, we provided them with coaches. You're going to coach them on their instructional practice, which is which is needed. But what have you done for their to actually mentor them to be able to navigate this system? And, and what have you done to keep them sustained through years, right? I mean, it's so key because it's more than just providing lessons. I'm glad you mentioned that, yes, we need qualified exceptional black male teachers in the classroom. We don't want anyone teaching our children, um, but we also need to make sure that these individuals stay in education, yes. in, the class. in the classroom, for sure. So then what that comes down to generally or usually is what is the leadership like in that building, right? What kind of leaders do you have leading? Because another saying that always comes up is people generally don't leave jobs. They generally leave the kids. Most people are connected to the kids in the way that, that you are, but they will leave a boss. They will leave a principal. They will leave an assistant principal. They will say the administration is, I got to get out of here. I have to leave this place because they're leaving to get away from said person in management. What skills do you think or what skills have you seen, right? Because you've actually like experiences in the physical from school leaders or administrators that has helped sustain you in the profession? Um, if the most important thing is that for a leader, for a principal, you have to recognize the culture of your building, of your district. And I'm looking at building culture, faculty, staff culture. You have to make sure that you are, can I say, aware that you are seen. Um, you know, there's a lot of times where you have teachers who don't feel as though they could even talk to their administrators because they don't feel valued. So as an administrator, you have to know the culture. You have to make sure that every single one of your faculty, your certified, your classified staff feel important and feel valued. That's the key, not just the 35 year vet who've been teaching for ever, but that first year teacher need to feel value. And what that first year teacher is saying is respected. That's the key. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. that being connected, being, being aware, connected. being present, all present. of those things like I, I love that. And I love that you give those those skills 
or or, or you talk through that? Because again, you talk about all throughout this conversation, you're talking about the little things that I think that people underestimate. And I think that when we talk about education, it's good to talk about it from a high level and the quality and the content of what we're teaching. But if you only focus on those things, it's these small things that you're talking about when people are not understanding why they aren't getting gains in schools, why they can't get teachers to connect with kids, or why every year it feels like it's it's a, a high turnover. Because people are truly missing out on these little things that it takes to really keep a school connected or to keep a person connected to the profession. And I don't think we give en- enough credit to those things at we all. Don't, and we don't give enough credit to just feeling as though you are a professional, that you are respected, right? And that respect, as I said earlier, if I'm walking through the office and if my principal and assistant principal are there, if I say good morning, and they don't even respond, mm. yep. I mean, it just don't even respond. But you have people, I'm, I'm like giggling a little bit because when you say that, right, you give that example, some people will be like, ain't worrying about a good morning. Need to go teach them kids, right? Like there are people who, who will carry that. There are people who listen to this, to this right now who might who might give that response, like man, because you ain't get a good morning, buck up and go teach them kids. <laughs> like, but you know what? I need to feel respected in order for me to be emotionally well for me to teach my kids. So I don't want the attitude if I'm saying good morning to staff and principals and they don't say anything back. Now I have an attitude. Now I'm going into the classroom with this attitude, which is unfair for my kids because they are catching that that emotion that I'm having. Well, you're tapping into yet another skill that is kind of like grazed over in education, and that is emotional intelligence. Um, Probably in the last 10, maybe 15 years, the movement of like mental wellness and mental health in education has really come up. Um, The Black Male Educators Convening that we'll be having in uh, November. Um, and we've invited you to speak, so I hope you're coming. Shout out to everybody who wants to hear more of Kurt, see more of Kurt. Um, make sure that you register for our Black Male Educators Convening. But one of the strands and one of the things that we're going to be highlighting at the convening is mental health and wellness of our Black men. Because um, we know in general, right, sometimes it's taboo as a Black male to have a conversation about just mental health. But when we think about the thing that you just described, that Black tax on you as a Black male educator for 10 years. For 10 years, the only brother in your district, meaning you didn't even look around and see anybody who looked like you or who could relate to the the black maleness of the things that you are experiencing. And that's just just thinking from the load of like just not being able to connect with folks, right, that are like you. The other part of that are the things that I can imagine that were placed on you as the only black man in your district to be the voice of all. Right. To handle all the we have a problem with the young black gentleman. Uh, we're going to talk to Kurt and see how we can gather these brothers. Right. So all of the things that were beginning to get put on you just as a black man, that tax and what that may have done um, to your spirit. Right. All these years. But mentally, it becomes exhausting. So what support do we have? How is the district supporting Kurt <laughs> and making sure that this brother is, is tended to for his emotional needs? And you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that because it is taxing. Right. Um uh, I coach basketball as well. So if there's an issue with the basketball team is all black males. So there's an issue. They come to Kurt, Uh, even if they don't play basketball. Like you said, they come to Kurt because supposedly I have a connection with every single black male 
that goes to the school. Um, and so it's difficult to really um, you know wear five and six different hats. But the way I am supported now, we have the way I'm supported that the school district recognized that. And then we started to make a conscious effort of hiring more black male teachers. Amazing. Yeah. That's good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. So then even with that, to segue into some folks would be like, oh, my God, I'm glad your district recognized that. And they did that. But then the question becomes, how did you guys do that? Like what plans were put in place to really attract more black educators um, in Oberlin? Yeah. What we started to do was have a grassroots um, mentorship program. Um, so we took the idea from Ed Rising. I'm not sure if I'm the audience with Ed Rising, um, we had that within our schools and we just start identifying young people that could be potentially a great teacher. We started going to some HBCUs and recruiting and it's a hard sell because we are a very small district. We have a large um, black population, but in terms of a nightlife, you know, you have to go <laughs> 35, 40 miles Got to you. get to Cleveland, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be honest with ourselves. There's some things that people are looking for, especially young people, that Oberlin did not have to offer. But one thing that we said that we could offer Black teachers is that we could offer them to introduce subjects that they feel a connection with. So we are empowering them. We are saying, hey, you come to Oberlin, here's a ticket, and you could take this ticket and introduce some courses that you feel is relevant. And that has been a lifesaver. So we have a course that is, I think, Black Sports, that is taught by our business teacher. Love that. And so, yeah, we're just introducing courses, um, electives, um, to try to engage our student body. And it has really, really been very inspirational. Um, and the great thing about what your district is doing as well, even when you named all the things that you're a part of, teachers understanding that, you know, you go and you teach your course and we get like teaching um, is a lot. Um, it's a lot of prep involved. It's a lot of things that you have to do. But being active within your school community beyond the classroom is super important for student development, student connection, and school culture. So for you to be the basketball coach, and shout out to you, I was also a basketball coach. I coached girls varsity for 11 years. So I understand what it means to be connected to kids beyond the classroom um, and the impact that you have in doing that, but also being a club sponsor. So the fact that the business teacher gets to teach a course outside of business, the kids get to see that teacher in a whole different light, a whole different craft, because we all know when we're connected to things that we're passionate about, a whole different side of us comes out, right? Oh, like yeah. I might be teaching math and I might like math, but if I get to teach, you know, math from ancient Kemet and that's my thing, I'm out here being another person because I'm passionate and the kids get to share in that joy of learning um, and teaching with me. So I think that is a great strategy that your district is using. And the grassroots movement. Yes, yes, yes. So we have it, it a has, It has to go there. So shout yeah. out to Ed's Rising. We also, um, at the Center for Black Educator Development, um, we have a teacher academy um, where we partner with districts um, to implement courses that introduce kids to teaching and social justice. So again, getting those little educators right in the seats, that's your next pipeline, right? The kids sitting right 
in front of us. Um, That's right. So you just so instead of waiting things. until kids are a first year or sophomore in college, you know, let's reach these kids when they are young. Because we can recognize when we see someone like, you know what, this person got something in them or yes. in her that could be great. So let's reach them while they're young. Yes. And I love that you say that because we always say that to our educators. How are students going to know that they're going to be a great teacher or a great leader? You have to tell them. You have to tell them. And when we did um, like some informal research on black males, like who told you to become a teacher or when did people start tap you on the shoulder? It's like, mm, not to college, some not until I graduated from college. But if you ask white women, third, fourth grade, people tell them to go into the teaching profession really early. Like you would be a great teacher. Uh, why aren't we saying those things to our young black students, our young black men specifically, who we see those really strong and dynamic leadership qualities in? So and, and that's exactly why it's right. so important for you know teachers to be passionate about the job, right? You have to be passionate because why would I become a teacher when my teacher doesn't even doesn't seem as though he likes teaching? Yes, that is so true. That is so true. And we've heard many kids say that, like the the the, the profession, the way it's currently portrayed, is like. I see these people struggling. I see they tired. I don't want that job. I don't want to do that work. <laughs> like, I'm not, yeah, no, I'm good. So, you know, we're doing the work of trying to inspire, like, young people, you can change this profession. You could change what they're seeing it in real time. And like, mm, I'm good. Like, yeah. I'm okay. So, so you can't come to the classroom and, you know, just throw some worksheets at kids and say, do this. I'm tired today. I don't feel like teaching. No, you have to be excited because it's a worthy profession. Profession. Yes. It's yes. a worthy profession and um, it's a profession that is great. I love that. Yes. And all the stuff and all the things that are getting thrown at teachers in that profession, it is most definitely a worthy profession. And Kurt, you wear it well. Okay. You wear it well. Love it. So one of the final questions, I have one more, but one of the final questions I want to ask you is, from your perspective, why are black teachers so important for black children? Like, what is a black teacher's impact on children? You know what? It's many things. I think number one is that representation that we provide. I think for even myself, when I was growing up, uh, my black heroes and sheroes, you know, was like entertainers, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, so as a black male. I looked at Dr. J and Magic Johnson, and I said, you know, that's the epitome of what a black male should be. Um, but I think what black teachers provide is a different perspective. And I think black teachers really break down those stereotypes that are portrayed in the media, in movies. Um, you know, black teachers, it's a connection there. And it provides inspiration. And I think that's what is so important about black male teacher and black, black teachers period, provide that inspiration for young black children and break down those stereotypes and give some new heroes and some new sheroes instead of entertainers all the time. Yes, yes, yes. I always uh, envision like if, if the world could be how I want it to be in terms of education that we're having and publicizing like the teacher draft. Uh, Kurt Russell has been drafted to Oberlin District as the number one teacher draft pick. Everybody's like, oh, we get Kurt. Right? Like people are super excited. 
about teachers and like kids are hyped like okay the new draft is coming out we got to see what teachers is on the board to come to we need him we got to recruit him right like imagine that (laughs) hunger and excitement for 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 educators right that people are invested in who's coming out the the next uh school of education who we want who we recruit to our district district but even the kids excitement about like no no we heard we saw his lesson we need him like that excitement (laughs) i would love that right you know what and that's the great thing about teaching that you know i wish we provided more honesty and more love to the profession Yes, I agree. One thing we get there. We are. So my yeah. heart lit up like the teacher draft. Um, yeah, I would love it. But you're right. More honesty and more love um, into the profession, and and it's it's com- it's complex, right? Because a lot of times we put a, a large onus on the on the teacher, um, and they have a responsibility in it too. Um, but to districts and district leaders, put more love. Um, and support into your teachers so that love and support can trickle trickle down to our students. Um, It's an ecosystem that truly has to have all the pieces in order to to work together. Um, And Kurt, my last question for you, and I'm asking this for a number of reasons. Number one, because of the courses you teach, the work you do, who you are um, as yourself, and then you are the national, right, teacher of the year for 2022. Do you think that teaching is, is political? And can we separate politics out of teaching? Wow. Is it political? Um, at the moment, yes, it is political um, because you have lawmakers who are dictating what books could be read in class, uh, what lessons could be taught, and that's handed down through legislation. And so what educators and those who support quality teaching must be political. So we must vote and change some of the practices and policies that I believe is hurting our children. Um, And so right now it's hard for me to really separate that because of the environment that we are in right now. Uh, We are in a political environment where everything that is being discussed, read in the classroom has a political motive behind it. Mm-hmm. Agree. Political motive, political implications on what our children know, what they learn, what they're allowed to know, what they're allowed to learn. Um, and as you say, as, you, as you've as like so nicely stamped on the show, right? Are they learning the truth? Are they learning the truth? Uh, are, are facts being displayed in the districts and in the classroom? And like you said, by legislation, um, some of that's being omitted and why, right? What For what purpose? which makes this all politically, um, in my opinion, politically motivated. Um, and the reason why I make that point and I ask that, because I also think that it's important for teachers to see that um, when you're in the classroom, yes, you are expanding knowledge. Yes, you're teaching children. But it's more than that because it's so much more at stake um, in this world, meaning you could be teaching future lawmakers <laughs> um, right there in your classroom. Um, and if they're not equipped with the truth um, or with the knowledge, they could reflect the current practices of some of our lawmakers who didn't get full education and full knowledge and full truth. Um, so what you're doing and the courses that you have, uh, Kurt, are so important um, and so impactful to children in the community of Oberlin. Um, and I just want to say personally, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. 
And I just want to say thank you for the work that you are doing and for the center. Um, you know, that grassroots organizations is what, you know, black education has been based upon. You go back to the 1960s in the 1950s civil rights movement, it was grassroots. And uh, I really do admire the work that your organization is doing. So thank you so much for having me this afternoon. I surely do appreciate it. Of course. But before you go, you cannot leave without us giving you the time and space to thank a Black teacher or some Black teachers. We would love for you to do that before you left us. Yes. Um, I'm going to mention several, if you don't mind. Oh, go ahead. Okay. One of my best, dearest friend, uh, Miss Danita Tober Brown, is doing marvelous work. She is the black business teacher I was sharing earlier. And what she is doing is absolutely wonderful. So a shout out to Danita Tober Brown. And then another shout out to Tierra Beard, um, fifth grade teacher um, who has moved on to be a mentor right now in our school district and the great work that she is doing as well. And then I have to go back to my personal mentor, Mr. Larry Thomas. He lives in Richmond, Virginia at this time, but he is the person that has really molded me and shaped me um, to become a teacher. Yes. Listen, shout out to all those beautiful, wonderful, strong, intelligent Black teachers out here who pour into Kurt. Kurt, so we are about to wrap and get out of here. Are there any final words that you want to leave with our guests listening to the podcast today? That please be intentional um, in regards to your education. Um, there's nothing more special than teachers. And I think everything that is great about this country, everything that is beautiful about this country started with a teacher. So I just want to leave that hope with everyone. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, congratulations on being National Teacher of the Year. Uh, we so appreciate you. We thank you for stopping by for sure. And to our listeners and co-conspirators out there, we appreciate you guys listening. Make sure you tell a friend to tell a friend and tell them again about Building the Black Educator Pipeline podcast. Please download, like, leave a review. Uh, we appreciate you guys and shout out the Center for Black Educator Development and Bright Beam for creating this platform for us to talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. Peace, y'all.